and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and him, Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Happy day after St. Patrick's Day, everybody. And Kieran, well done on beating Southampton. It must have come as a pleasant surprise to learn they're giving away three points for a win these days. <laughs> yeah, it has, it has been quite some time. Uh, I, I was still convinced up until, I think, the 92nd minute that the most <laughs> we'd get was a draw. Um, and at the final whistle, yes, uh, celebrations were had. Yeah, and the expected goals. Yeah, only six hundred, <laughs> only six hundred ninety-eight behind what it should have been. Um, later on, uh, and again, I always sound like I'm telling you this, Kieran, but you know because we just interviewed him and you were there. Uh, but later on, we'll be hearing from Lee Wood, who is head of academy education at Bolton Wanderers, and a very interesting, passionate educator. He turns out to be. It's a very good interview. But of course, it's news day, so let's let's not be controversial. Let's have some news. And let's have some good news because Wigan Athletic meet Abdul Rahman Al Jazmi, and Abdul Rahman Al Jazmi meet Wigan Athletic. Job done all over, Kieran. Ninety nine percent done. Uh, the deal has not been finalised in the sense that we've had uh, uh, EFL formal approval, but uh, the the administrators did announce that the the Bahrainian based consortium uh, has acquired uh, Wigan Athletic or the assets of Wigan Athletic. The deal is, uh, is supposed to be through, go, go through by the end of the month. Uh, a company called Phoenix 2021 will be the, the formal owners. And what will happen in due course is that Wigan Athletic uh, AFC or Wigan Athletic Football Club will then go into liquidation. The name will disappear. And this company, Phoenix 2021, which will be, will be able to pick up the name. So um, it, it's a sense of of relief, I would imagine, for Wigan fans more than anything else. But I'm, I'm absolutely delighted for them. Yeah, we, we've spoken to, to Caroline Molyneux on, on a couple of occasions have, yeah. uh, with regards to this. We've had Andy Burnham uh, show you know, his enthusiasm from, from coming from other parts of Manchester uh, and, and, and the North. So, yeah, it, it, it's a relief. Um, there's there's winners and losers, as always. Uh, you know, the, the, the big question I don't think will ever be answered as to why did Al Young buy the club for £30 million and then mm. two weeks later wind it up? Yeah. Um, the unsecured creditors, it looks like they're going to lose around about 75% of what's owed to them. Staff have been made redundant. So, you know, it, it's not all good news. And, and Wigan themselves, of course, have been relegated to the to League One. They're, they're, they're just above the trapdoor uh, in, in terms of back-to-back relegations and, mm. and hoping that this is this will be a shot in the arm for them. Um, the the big winners, you know, the fans have got a club to support. You know, they, they can start to have those, those longer-term plans. Um, looking at the board of directors of Phoenix 2021, they do appear to have some people with a bit of football knowledge, a bit of local knowledge as well, um, which I think is always useful because if you have a consortium coming into a club with with no knowledge whatsoever of A, the industry, and B, sort of the, the, the local culture, um, it, it can it can be occasionally a bit of a car crash. Mm. The uh, the unsecured creditors are the non football creditors, aren't they? And I, I understand they're being paid enough for the club to avoid a fifteen point deduction. Is that right? Uh, 
That's right. So under uh, EFL rules, and, and I think this is really good of the EFL to have, because uh, to, to, this prevents clubs just putting themselves into administration yeah. willy-nilly. Um, if you fail to pay uh, your unsecured creditors, who will be the you know the, the the people that supply the coaches for away trips and the pies and sort of things of this nature, um, you you have to uh, give them at least twenty five percent of the sums which are due to them. Now the deal would not have gone through had it not been for our young effectively saying, um, "I'm going to exclude my thirty million pounds that I put into the club or bought the club for," um, in respect of that. So he's 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 completely out of it in terms of money. Um, and and uh, the the other big winners in in respect of this are our silver tongue friends because mm. the administrators um, they they've managed to charge one point six million pounds or they estimate they're going to pay. Uh, be paid about 1.6 million pounds on the basis of their time costs but if they sell the club they then get a one-third uplift which takes their fees to to 2.2 million and, and i find this idea of a of an uplift for doing your job mm. um a bit strange if, if you do a gig kevin and at the end of the day you go up to the promoter and said uh I've just just done a gig for you, um, and people are laughing. So you've got to go and pay me extra. Yeah. Uh, they're going to turn around and say, "Well, you're a comedian. You make people laugh. You know, wh- why am I giving you extra money for doing your day job?" Mm. Yeah, it's a fair point. And um, unfortunately, Kieran, if Wigan, a one club that's old friends to the pod, another club that's old friends to the pod, have got some corresponding bad news, haven't they? Yes, um, we've not spoken about Derby for two or three weeks, so I, I know their fans were getting a bit twitchy. Um, well, no, we did have a question from a Derby fan about the price of his uh, programme collection on Sunday, but but that's about it. That's right. Um, so there, there was an agreement to uh, sell the club, uh, which has which was announced uh, in November. Um, and this was to a, a Middle East owner. I think it was uh, Derventio Holdings was the UK company. But sadly, it turns out to be fake shake news. And um, <laughs> uh, it looks as if the, the funds which have been promised to Mel Morris in respect of the deal, um, they it was a case of, oh, yeah, I, I need a little bit more time. And, and then the club was saying, oh, yeah, it's definitely coming in. The money will be before Christmas. And then we got to the end of December and there were issues in terms of wages because Mel Morris thought that Derby would have been sold by then. Um, the club ended up uh, selling some players in January, which uh, I think frustrated you know, Wayne Rooney and so and, and co because you know, he, he potentially would have wanted to keep those players, but they needed money to go and pay the, the, the week-by-week costs. Um, you know, Mel Morris... You've got to give him a lot of credit. He's got uh, he's got personal issues. He's he's not been he's not he's not in a hundred percent of good health. But he has continued to to dip his hand into the pocket to to pay the wages and the other costs. Um, it looks as if there could, however, be a new consortium involved, mm. and this uh, this is headed up by a guy called Eric Alonso, and he's quite intriguing because. Until a couple of months ago, he was an advisor to Sheffield Wednesday, an, another club who, have a, uh, who who appear on the show perhaps once or twice too often uh, as far as their fans are concerned. Uh, but he had a big fallout with uh, Delphon Chansiri, who is the Sheffield Wednesday owner, and he's now being linked 
with uh, Derby, but it does go to show that getting these deals over the line is quite tricky because I'm also hearing that uh, that West Bromwich Albion, uh, they, they, they were up for sale and it looks like that deal uh, might be struggling as well because uh, once you get down into the small print, uh, people find excuses to walk away. Hmm. Now, Kieran, you've known me long enough to know that for reasons we don't need to go into on this pod, uh, Belgium is my favourite country. I love Belgium. Uh, some of the reasons are not unconnected with your Moscow reasons, but let's, as I say, not go into it. Um, but this is very big news. The, the Belgian FA have voted to merge with the Dutch league. Yes. Um, we're get, they're going to uh, create uh, the the Benny League, I think it's mm. going to be called, which immediately, of course, for, 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 for guys of our age, <laughs> <laughs> we start thinking of crossroads. We do, yeah. We do, Miss Diane, yes, indeed. Um, but uh, this this is a, a vote uh, by the clubs themselves um, for a, an effective merger to have something which is more appealing to a TV audience. Mm. Um, so... The, 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 I think the present deals that the, the clubs have in both uh, Belgium and the Netherlands expire uh, in around about 2024 or 2025. So that would give the two sets of authorities to come up with an agreed constitution. Um, yeah, th- there, there will be complications. Yeah, what happens, for example, in terms of relegation? Mm. Uh, what happens in terms of the clubs that are left behind? Because this is likely to be one league only. Um, so, and there have been, there's been some criticism that it, it really is aimed at favouring the big clubs, the likes of Club Bruges and Andelect and so on, um, in a similar way to um, some of the, the proposals we've historically had with regard to Celtic and Rangers mm. dropping into the, the English leagues. So uh, it's, it's interesting um, that there was a report done by Deloitte, which reckons it could uh, increase the value of the TV deal by around about 400 million euro a year. So, yeah, that's that, that's going to move the dial quite well there. Um, it, it, are there precedents for it? Well, yeah, we, we do have Cardiff, Swansea, Newport in the English League, uh, FC mm. Andorra play in Spain, uh, all, all the clubs in Liechtenstein, they play in Switzerland. So... Uh, there's, I can't see any significant objection coming from UEFA. Um, so it's uh, it's interesting times. Very interesting times because it's a, it's a small country with a complicated history. And I, I suspect there will be fans of some of the clubs in the French-leaning part of Belgium that won't be particularly happy about joining what is essentially a Dutch, a Dutch league. Um, so that is one to to look after. I've been to uh, football ground in Liechtenstein. I've been to FC Verduzzi's ground. I, I didn't realise it until I'd walked through it. Basically, <laughs> is that Liechtenstein or the ground? No, listen, listen, well, no. I went to see again for circumstances that we don't need to go into in this pod. I went. <laughs> I went. I actually travelled to see Liechtenstein play Latvia in a UEFA qualifier, and it's the first game I've ever been to, including Sunday football, where. Um, there was a five-minute break while a ball was got out of the pond. <laughs> yeah. And this was a proper UEFA game with referees in green shirts and everything. Now, uh, Kieran, I don't like to rake up unhappy memories for you, but three days ago, in answer to a question about the financial potential of clubs in League Two, you earmarked Leighton Orient as a sleeping giant. 
the same Leighton Orient that have just announced losses of £2.3 million, <laughs> million pounds in the last year and total liabilities of £10 million. Is your crystal ball on the blink, Kieran? No, I, I still. I, I think the fact that it's losing money now shows that uh, you know, with, with the right circumstances, that could be turned round. Um, <laughs> well, do you sound like Boris Johnson? Yes, we are losing money now, but you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Seems Just call me Rishi. <laughs> Go on, keep digging. Um, right, so uh, yeah, Leighton Orient, and I've actually dug into their accounts for, for a whole decade now, and, and it turns out, and this pap doesn't reflect too greatly on myself, is that uh, over the course of the last decade, they've lost 50 grand a week, um, which which I think is indicative of just how difficult it is in, in the lower divisions. Now, I, I know that, that Barry Hearn had a few issues there, and then the subsequent owner proved to be um, you know, best best described as a character, and we, we all know what character means uh-huh. uh, in terms of ridiculous uh, rotation in terms of the managers and players, and, and it all got very messy. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there is more stability there now. that they've, they've got Nigel Travis in charge, who, who used to be head of uh, Dunkin' Donuts. Um, that's, uh, if, you, if you want my address, Dunkin' Donuts, for that advert, uh, just just... just <laughs> Just tweet me, um, but uh, I think it shows that there there are huge challenges because th- these accounts. Yes, there was an impact of COVID because they they cover the the, the rear end of the 2019-20 season, but the majority of the season was pre-COVID, and uh, losses of this magnitude sadly are not out of character uh, for clubs in the lower leagues. Uh, and where you know, where football does go forward long term with regards to some form of financial sustainability is is something which still leaves me scratching my head too much. Mm. We've joked previously, Kieran. In fact, just on Sunday, we we talked about HMRC having a kind of Homer Simpson shack attitude to to players. There's like two people on their crack team, and one of them is off sick. But it turns out we may have underestimated them because. Premier League players could face retrospective multi-million pound tax bills following a clampdown by HMRC on payment of agents' fees. Yes. Um, What's been happening here is um, we're aware that uh, agents are allowed what's referred to as dual representation and sometimes triple representation, where they act on behalf of both uh, often the buying club and the player himself. Now, HMRC uh, have said that's we're quite happy about that. If, if you are representing the player and the club, therefore, when it comes to invoicing for your services um, and looking at the, the, the Wigan administrator's report, yeah, being an agent can be very, very lucrative, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, when, it, when it comes to invoicing, if you are doing dual representation, then the logical thing is to invoice the player for 50% of the cost and the club for the other 50% of the cost. Now, you, know, you and I know is that you know, when we go out and buy something from a shop, we pay VAT on it. And yeah. therefore, the same would, in theory, apply to a player. So he has an agent. The agent says, I've got you a transfer. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, my fees are, are 200 grand on the deal. You pay 100 grand plus VAT, so that's 120, and the club yeah. plays 100 plus, plus VAT. But, of course, the club is able to reclaim the VAT because it's a trading entity. 
So what some agents have been doing, they've been saying, well, under those circumstances, we will invoice the club 90% for the price of the deal and the player only 10%. That means, as far as HMRC is concerned, that 90% of the VAT is being reclaimed and therefore, ultimately, the exchequer ends up with less money. Um, HMRC, by all accounts, are now taking a dim view of this and they're coming after the players and they're saying, right, we, we want to see the documentation. We want to see how much you paid. We're going to compare that to how much the, the, the club has paid. And if the figures are different, there's going to be a change of circumstances and you will now be liable for the VAT uh, in, in respect of the transfers. And you know, we, we've seen some of the, the agents' fees. Remember... Uh, Paul Pogba's agent, mm. uh, you know, he he took around about twenty six million pounds from uh, Pogba's transfer from Juventus to Manchester United, where Juventus wanted to sell the player, Manchester United wanted to buy the player, and the player wanted to move. So it it wasn't the most difficult of deals to to negotiate. Um, so yeah, players players could end up uh, with with a fairly big bill arriving uh, from from our good friends, the tax inspectors. It almost seems a little unfair on the players, Kieran, because I'm guessing a lot of them will never even see the invoice. They're not even really aware of the financial aspects. They're just given a, a sum of money by the agent after it all, and this is, this is what you're left with. So it's, there will be some very confused players who have said, right, I'll leave everything to the agent, who are now suddenly confronted with the idea that, and of course, yes, they should know, they should be aware of their own circumstances, but some of them clearly won't have been. They'll have left it to the agent, and now they'll be getting a surprise brown envelope, wouldn't they? Which is, I mean, I can, I can give them lessons on not being surprised at a brown envelope <laughs> coming through, which is mainly to try and get one every week, and the, the shock wears off. But you know, but you know, you see my point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think uh, players do put trust in their representatives. Uh, yeah, it, it could be that the agent will absorb some of this cost themselves, um, but. Equally, uh, knowing some of them, that won't necessarily be the case. Um, there's also there's also managers I'm aware of who are who are no strangers to brown envelopes. But for for legal reasons, I can say no more than that. <laughs> That's the good old days you're talking about there. <laughs> the EFL is considering whether to continue offering fans a chance to watch their teams' home matches online, even after fans return to grounds. Yes, um, and I think one of the uh, surprising successes of of lockdown has been the iFollow service. When Mm. when it initially started, the quality of the broadcast was uh, hit and miss. Uh, Also, people were paying for the service, logging on and getting a picture of uh, one part of the pitch because it was quite often just one camera there um, or the the, the streaming service, the, the uploading was so poor that they were you know, a good few minutes behind and, and the, 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 the picture kept coming and going. Um, but you know, to give credit to A, the technicians, and B, the EFL, most of those problems appear to have been addressed. Um, and there is a view now that uh, that some fans who, for whatever reason, it could be that they feel that their personal circumstances uh, won't allow them to to afford to go to matches and to pay the regular to pay the regular fees. By the time you factor in transport and buying a program and you know a couple of pints at the ground mm. and a pie and so on, um, so yeah, they are they are looking at uh, continuing the the, the ten pounds a match uh, for home fans. 
Um, and I think this will be you know, a, a really good service for for away fans as well. It's, uh, if they even if they restricted it to Tuesday night, you know, if you're yeah. if you're Morecambe and you're playing at Southend, uh, you know, that's 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 a journey and a half. Um, if if you can if you can do it via iFollow, and, and I know that there are a, you know, arrangements with broadcasters that already exist, where I think Sky show practically all the goals anyway mm. uh, from the EFL. But uh, yeah, it, it's uh, it's an intriguing development. Um, so I'm I'm hoping that it doesn't result in a reduction in the number mm. of people attending because you know, the atmosphere at the grounds is is part of the love and the enjoyment of it. But uh, it, it, you know, it, this could be increasing the club's overall income if if you know three or four hundred people who wouldn't have normally attended you know do do chuck, do uh, pipe up a, a, an extra tenner um so yeah w- wait and see but uh, as you say though there's a balance because if you get three or four hundred people who would normally have attended not doing so then the club are not getting the money they would spend before the game and at half time on on various things so uh, there will be some smaller clubs who would worry about that because Losing five hundred fans if your average attendance is is four thousand is a is a big hit, isn't it? Yes, uh, but I, I, I suspect this will be done on a club by club basis. Right. Okay, so therefore, right, you'll be right. able to to opt in or opt out. I, 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 I'm, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm I'm old school like you. You know, I I I love going to matches. It's the same as you know. Would I rather go to Glastonbury or, or watch it on the BBC? And and you know, given a choice, I'd I'd be there like a shot. You know, for any uh, live performance, but. Uh, you know people's personal circumstances and also coming out of covid there will still be some people who perhaps have been sheltering they've got yep. pre-existing yeah, conditions exactly. they're yeah, of a yeah. certain age where they've where they've made a, a life decision where mm. i don't want to go to places with where large numbers of people are congregating uh, you know, we know the vaccination is uh is very successful but it's not a hundred percent successful um and therefore some people might take the view that they're going to put their their own personal health issues uh, mm. ahead of of attending football matches yeah we just used the words old school didn't we um uh and there's a row going on between sam allardyce and ravel morrison it's very difficult kieran for anybody my age to say there's a row going on without adding out near slough Yes, um, I, was, I thought exactly the same. <laughs> just, just it drives Ali up the wall because every time the BBC radio news announcer says in the city, I have to say there's a thousand things I want to say to you. But um, there's a row going on between Sam Allardyce and Ravel Morrison, and this is uh, it's refreshingly old school, isn't it? The reason for this row, it is. It is uh, still the biggest regret of my life was I had tickets for the jams. Last ever concert no. at the Brighton Centre. Oh my word! Really, and I'd seen the Jam quite a few times. I used to follow the Jam around, and my kid sister had never seen them. And in a in, in an act of ridiculous selflessness, I said, "It's okay. I'll give you my ticket." And I'm still bitter about it. Oh, uh, yeah, best part of forty years later. I bet you are. Do you know what? It, 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 this is for a completely different pod. But the older I get, the more I think Jam. The Jam were the Without a doubt, the best band of their generation, if not of all time. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, Sam Allardyce and Ravel Morrison, it's mainly about agents, isn't it? Yes. Um, the This is a potential uh, litigation by mm. Sam Allardyce. Ravel Morrison went on to uh, Rio Ferdinand's show, which, which goes out on, on YouTube. Uh, it's, it's, it's distributed via social media. Um, and... and 
Ravel Morrison's career is, I think, one of the big tragedies of yep. of the last decade or so. Yeah, him and John, um, Bo- him and John Bostock, the two greatest wasted talents, I think, of the last ten, twenty years, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and I I used to get a Manchester United fanzine called um, Red Issue every edition, and it was it was written by. By blokes, you, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Our, our type again, our age group. Um, they knew their football, and the the constant frustration was this kid is going to throw it all away. Um, but the the accusation that has been made by Ravel Morrison on the show, and we cannot, of course, uh, uh, c- confirm that this is the case. Um, that. Uh, he had an agent and he'd been transferred from Manchester United to West Ham. He had been very successful. There was talk. I think Roy Hodgson was the England manager at the time. He was, there yeah. was talk about him uh, getting into the England squad. Um, and, and he's one of these players, you know, the, 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 the likes of Robin Friday, you know, yep. uh, yeah, yeah. you know who, who was one of the best footballers who, who didn't really care about football. It's just that he happened to be brilliant at it. Um, and, uh, the, the the inference is um, that uh, that Sam Allardy said we will give you a new contract, we'll give you a better contract, but you've got to change agent to an agent who has, I think, was Sam's agent and also represented some of the other West Ham players, and, and we hear stories of this nature taking place. Uh, Ravel Morrison said thanks, but no thanks, and then all of a sudden he's he's frozen out. Yeah. Um, Sam Allardyce uh, says this is complete nonsense. Uh, he's he's feeling wounded by this, and it looks as if this could end up in some form of of legal uh, redress, um, which, which is always sad. You know, why not just phone somebody up and say, "Can, can we just sort this out?" You know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. bloke to bloke. Um, there's no need for for the legal things to, because um, you know Sam Allardyce has been accused of many things over mm. the years, and and people just ignore it so i don't think this is damaging his reputation he is a very successful football manager he is the only england football manager ever to have a 100 percent record as manager yeah, as is. well yeah he's also a, a a big fan of ice skating just really? loves, yeah <laughs> dancing on ice was his, his favorite show i managed to get him a ticket once he was over the moon um good mention of robin friday by the way reading fans who love the jam will be really misty-eyed now <laughs> um it's nearly time for our interview, Kieran, but we have a, a story before that and then a couple off the back of it, funny enough. The World Players Union, Fifth Pro, uh, says it's received claims for more than £40 million from players whose clubs haven't paid their wages. That's a lot of unpaid wages, isn't it? It, it is. Um, and whilst we yeah, we do talk about finance on the show, clearly, and, we, and our focus is on very much the domestic game, um, what we see in, uh, in, in many countries are tales of complete uh, lack of governance from the football authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, so over 1,400 players uh, have contacted Fifth Pro, and there is, there is a fund uh, which FIFA uses to pay out players for, for those clubs that have gone bust. Um, and, and we're seeing this uh, quite a quite frequently in Greece and Turkey, according to the reports. Um, but the, the accusation is that in some football associations, clubs go bust 
Um, there are different insolvency laws to those in the UK and the clubs go bust having not paid the players. There isn't the same football creditors rule that necessarily operates um, here in in the UK in terms of points deductions if you don't give uh, 100% payments to football creditors and then the clubs just set up immediately again. And, and that's why that some of the rules were introduced uh, in terms of football creditors uh, by by the Premier League and the EFL, and, and you, you've got to give those those organisations uh, some applause for that. Um, but you know, there are players who are not on big wages. They're, 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 when you actually hear about some of the, especially the lower league uh, uh, clubs in uh, in continental Europe, because. I think we we perceive uh, other countries having a you know a three or four division system where there are you can still get really decent crowds in the lower leagues, mm. but you know English football is is unique. You know our our ninety two club system is uh, is not copied uh, elsewhere, and and the crowds you know we're talking you know buttons in terms of the number of people turning up. So, so th- there's a lot of players who financially have been suffering. Um, the the union is trying to get more money out of FIFA um, in, in respect of this, but of course, you know, FIFA has got its own financial commitments and concerns as well. Mm. Uh, in these more enlightened times for young footballers, a club academy has two meanings now, of course. We spoke to Lee Wood, who's head of academy education at Bolton Wanderers, about the philosophy and finances for teaching young footballers. Uh, Lee, thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, is it all right to call you Lee or should I call you Sir? No, Lee's absolutely fine. Great, okay. Uh, it's still amazing, even at my age, you still have that thing when you meet educators, you think, oh, I'm not sure, I don't like calling them <laughs> Um How did you end up, Lee, as the head of academy education at Bolton Wanderers? Um, well, I'd love to come on here and tell you an inspirational story of how it was, yeah, um, on a on a whiteboard somewhere. But yeah, it, it was by pure chance, uh, right person at the right time, an opportunity effectively, so... Um, from doing teacher training at the local college, I then was given uh, an opportunity to teach on the BTEC programme at the Bolton did an International Academy at the time. Um, so I came on board with that and then, yeah, was filling in, in inverted commas, for uh, an academy tutor. And that filling in kind of, yeah, went to semi-long term to a point of where I was offered head of education, snapped the hand off, and that was, what, Five years ago, so I've been with the club seven years. That was five years ago when I took on head of education and not looked back since. Now, all football fans, Lee, think they know everything there is to know about football and they're probably aware that yeah, young talent at every club is being educated. But what, what are the legal requirements around the education of young footballers? Uh, well, obviously, I mean, legally, they have to remain in education until they turn 18, um, same as um, you know most uh, young boys and girls do. Uh, in that respect, from an academy perspective, we're governed by the EPPP rulings, so the Elite um, Player Performance Plan, um, and that's set out by the Premier League and the Football League collectively. So they give us a set of rules, guidelines, um, that we need to um, educate the, the lads um, for a set amount of hours per week as part of their training schedule, because they're, they're scholars, apprentices, call them what you will, they're employees of the football club. So that's their, um, yeah, that's kind of their required commitment in terms of when they sign the papers. It's surprising still now how uh, very few players realise that that's in the contract they're signing, but it is. 
Um, and obviously, from my perspective, and a lot of heads of education across the country, all the other football league clubs and Premier League uh, clubs, you know, we, we realise that the the importance and of you know educating these young lads because, as we all know, you know, only a very very small percentage are going to make it to the professional ranks and be able to earn a living. Yeah, of course, we will come on to that later on. Um, who's who, forgive me, Lee, but my job on this program is to answer the idiot, uh, ask you the idiot questions, basically. But who, who's funding the academies? Are they individually funded by the clubs, or is it centrally funded? Um, a bit of both. So, my understanding from the wider perspective of the funding, it is um, so we're category three academy. We just downgraded from category two. So, depending on your category. Um, you there's a financial uh, stipulation you have to meet and the EFL or the Premier League meet the other half of it as well. Um, from an education point of view, that now is um, self-funded. That used to be um, externally funded through the SFA, but now that is through something called a levy. Won't bore you or your listeners with that. But essentially, it's a tax on, and, and probably Kieran will know this, but there's a tax on, on, on the wage bill and part of that um, pot that the money goes into we use that to um, employ, pay and educate the scholars in the under-18s. Yeah, I, I wouldn't worry about boring our listeners. <laughs> Seriously, Kieran, Kieran and I have discovered that their boredom threshold is set rather high. These people, any, Anybody who's sitting down to listen to a football accounting podcast, we, we're kind of working with different parameters. I'm, I'm really intrigued, Lee, you say that, that players are often surprised to learn that they have to continue their education because I... That's obviously a problem for you because I guess every single young player that you teach is convinced they will become a, a professional footballer. So what are the challenges of, of persuading the youngsters of the importance of education? Um, I mean, varied really. And, and, and again, most heads of education you, you, you talk to, that's you know one of the, the, the biggest challenges really because, yeah, you know, the, the clues above the, above the door of most football clubs, it is football. It's not an education programme. Uh, we're not a college, we're not a university, um, but, you know, again, we can s- take a step back. Um, and when I say we, I don't just mean heads of education, player care officers, safeguarding welfare, all the other members of staff who are not directly kind of impacting on their football development. We understand that, you know, they've got kind of, a, you know, a very limited window, very limited opportunity to, to make it as football player. And we've got a duty of care to make sure that not only we're educating them, but we're developing them, you know, as people, human beings, as well as football players. Uh, my biggest passion really is is, the, is to do with the transition of, uh, you know, preloading that from, from day one, really. But it still is surprising, you know, lads will join us. We do school visits, so we prepare them before you know they even get uh, offered the scholarship and when they do we're straight in at the school and we're you know we're explaining what entry requirements are going to need from a GCC perspective what it, the program is going to look like so there's no shocks you know we learn trial and error as most people do and you know we go right well we need to preload this very early door so there's no shocks when they come into induction with the parents of you know what lies ahead for the next two years. Hmm. Is that your child in the background, or is the academy taking them really young? <laughs> yeah, no, that's not our pre pre academy. That's uh, <laughs> yeah, that's my uh, class of one in the other room. Yeah. Uh, Kieran, of course, is an educator, so he'll probably understand this question better than I do. But are are they harder to teach? young footballers then do you have to adopt different teaching methods than you would if you were just teaching 14 15 year olds in a in a normal school for want of a better word yeah i mean 
again, it's you, you learn the basics at teacher training. You know, it's it's the the needs of the learners and the needs of our learners that they are football players. So you, you're going to teach them in you know not a totally different way. The the, the the slight things that you know they probably wouldn't notice, but you know we do as a um, you know part of the course in terms of how we deliver things, how we you know change the method of assessments and things of that nature. But ultimately, it comes down to the basics of any teaching. You know, you build a rapport, you establish trust with them, and you know, 99.9% of the lads realise that, okay, you know, in terms of what we're doing, we're doing it because, you know, we have an invested interest in them and we're doing it because it's the right thing for them. It's, uh, I'm really enjoying this interview, Lee, by the way, and you're winning best sound effects of any interview guest that we've yeah, had on it recently. Yeah, yeah, it's not just Kieran's doggy backs in the background when the postman comes. <laughs> It's all right, I'm used to it with Kieran. Kieran's got a really intelligent dog that opens the door, as mainly when it hears my voice. Um, Lee, I I, I'm interested in this one, and I don't want to insult you in any way or other football clubs, but is there a genuine desire, do you think, from most clubs to ensure players receive an education? Or, or for some, is the sole focus producing successful footballers and they're not that fussed whether they're bright or not? I mean, it, it's difficult. I mean, I can only speak from, you know, I've only ever worked at Bolton Wanderers and, you know, in terms of the education part, it's, yeah, 100% that everybody understands the, the numbers that we're playing with. It is the numbers game, the, the, the amount of lads who are going to make it as professional, you know, and even those who make it professional, they might only sign a one-year, two-year contract. So it's, again, short-lived. Um, but, it, you know, in, in terms of, for me, it's the wider development. And, you know, again, I can only speak first-hand of Bolton Wanderers, but across the board, when you speak with other heads of education, when we get together on, you know, conferences and webinars and stuff, is it's a case of whereby maybe not everybody's buying into the, the wider development and the life skills and the transition. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody understands the legal requirements for them to be educated. Um, but it, it's difficult because you, you're almost selling them a programme that they uh, – current they have very little say in so the lfe lee football education uh, the education arm of the uh, efl they um basically stipulate what education program they go on so they do a btec level three in sport along with a few other complementary uh, qualifications as well which which are good um but again we, you know we're kind of pigeonholing every single lad you know and we take on around 10 scholars per per season so we have over two cohorts that's 20 in total and not all those 20 will want to go into sport if football isn't a viable option for them. So it is difficult to sell the education programme to them on that one. But then that's our job to kind of link it into life skills, to link it into transferable career skills and, you know, to get them to see the the, the purpose of it. There's a purpose behind everything that we do. And again, it goes back to that kind of establishing rapport and trust with them that, you know, what we're asking them to do and what we're doing on a, on a daily basis is, is good for them. So I find that very interesting. So you're you're working to a, a kind of national curriculum in a sense, and so you haven't got a lot of leeway within your individual system to identify kids who might have a a practical skill, for example, or who might be a, a good car mechanic. You're basically working to a set curriculum. Yeah, from a football league, Premier League obviously have a lot more freedom because they have a lot more finance behind it. They can do a more bespoke individual education program. But again, it's nothing stopping football league clubs such as ourselves from doing that. It just gets more difficult because a lot of the time finance comes into it. So, you know, we try and be proactive and we get approached by, you know, a lot of companies in terms of, you know, doing a fitness 
at uh, gym instructors level two or doing a um, scouting qualification or like you were saying, you know, if they want to do a, a mechanics course, they could potentially do that, you know, as a as an add-on, but it gets kind of complicated of you know, double dipping in terms of funding and things of that nature. But it is quite limiting, really. And I think that aspect needs to change for the benefit of the lads. And ultimately, that's what we're all in football for. It's for the benefit of the lads who, you know, are with the club. I'm really here, pleased to hear you say that, that it's about the, the youngsters rather than the football club. Because I think in the old days, and Kieran will back me up on this, we were all aware of stories of heartbroken apprentices not being offered contracts. Every every supporter of every club has heard yeah. different. I mean, it, it was brutal. It's either well done, son, sign here, or it's please leave the building. So you're... Are you you're part of that process now? I presume are you, you'll you'll be warned in advance of the youngsters that won't be offered contracts, and you, you're you're there as a fallback to offer them other opportunities, or or even point them towards other local non-league clubs as well as education opportunities. Yeah, heads of education are probably. I'm not saying it because you know I am one, but I think they are probably one of the most important people within the academy system purely because of that. Because um, you know. Football is football. We, we don't specialise in football. We have no knowledge of football. We leave that to the experts. But again, playing the numbers game, a lot more people will fall out of football. And that's where we come in. And, mm. you know, we, I'm not just talking about myself. I know a lot of other heads of education, both in, in the Northwest and across the country, you know, you establish relationships for life uh, with these players. And, you know, you, you have players reach out. I had one a couple of weeks ago asking me for a reference. Not seen him in five years. He, he graduated in the first group that I got through the academy and didn't get offered a professional contract, you know, fell down the tiers of football and then ultimately made that difficult decision that he was going to pursue a career elsewhere and, and not even participate football at a grassroots level. Oh, and you know, he contacted me last week for a reference and that's a, you know, a really good feel good part of the job where you're actually helping a human being an individual to kind of kickstart their career. But a lot more needs to be done in, in that area from, from my perspective, you know, in terms of preparing these lads for, for life. And, you know, what, what we do at Bolton, what we do collectively as heads of education within football, there are some great examples and some good examples, but I think it needs to be outstanding across the board and a lot more needs to be done in, in, in that respect. Uh, I, I remember when, when Steve Parrish and the consortium took over Palace in 2010, he was he was horrified to discover that you, you're pretty much saying to a 16-year-old, we don't think you're good enough, and now we're sending you back basically to the estate you came from with no with no help, no fallback, and that's, that, that's not right. In, in terms of numbers... Leah, of, of the two cohorts you talk about, you've got 20 youngsters in the academy. How many of them, or, or any even of them, would you expect to go on to become professional footballers? Uh, well, at this moment in time, well, we had normally recruit around 18 to 20. We have 18 funded places. And obviously there's always some exceptions that will take on some additional numbers. We've got quite smaller numbers now at the moment. Like I said, we've gone down to cap three. Mm. Probably the bottom tier of the professional uh, football league. Uh, we've recently just sold um, one of our scholars to Norwich. Um, so he'll be signing professional. If not, he's already signed professional contracts with them. But in terms of numbers, quite, you know, on average, you're looking at one per cohort will get a professional contract. Now, last year was an exceptional year. Maybe, you know, uh, the financial implications of the club and mm. the academy going down from cat two to cat three had an impact on that, as well as maybe potentially COVID this time last year. We actually offered four uh, professional contracts. But again, it doesn't stop there. That's not 
from my eyes, and I can only speak from my, you know, professional and personal opinion, for me, that's not necessarily success because those four lads are either on a one or two year contract. So I always tell the lads who get released, you know, obviously, like you said, a lot of them are devastated, but sometimes they're ahead of the curve because some of the lads that we've taken on as, as professionals, maybe they get released at the end of this season, maybe they get released at the end of next season. And those lads who are in the same cohort as them, but got released at the end of their 18s, they may already be a year, two years into their university degree. They may already be a year into their US scholarship. They may already be, you know, one year into their new career, as it were, be, as it were. So they're ahead of the curve, really, in terms of that. It, it's funny how it works out. Yeah. Kieran, can I just bring you in there for, for a moment? What what are the financial implications then? Can you tell us off the top of your head about going from a, a Cat 2 to a Cat 3 academy? Well, it, it's, uh, it, it's a cost issue. Uh, the, the, the cost of running a Cat 2 academy is around about £1.5 million a year. A Cat 1 is supposed to be £5 million. So if, if you drop down to Cat 3, it, it's normally been financially driven and, and the club is looking to... Uh, to cut back on as many overheads as it can, which clearly puts puts pressure on on Lee and, and some of his colleagues as well. Uh, Lee, I was interested there to hear you talk about um, US scholarships. And there's a long, long time ago, a friend of mine who was a useful footballer, but not brilliant, but he ended up getting a US scholarship and then he ended up playing in, in Switzerland at a, at a decent level. Are there, are there players who who do turn professional and then at the age of 19, 20, 21 will turn to you for advice on on further education who decided they actually like learning or they, they want to, to add another string to their bow? Or, or is it a case that once they turn professional, your job is over completely as a teacher? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. I mean, in terms of fully turning professional, it's very slim the numbers who, you know, in terms of or want to probably return to education. And normally there's a, a gap of a fair few years because that you know they're they're doing trial and error in their own personal and, and professional career mm. in terms of, of that that aspect. But um, for for lads who you know are trying to you know forge a career in football, it, you know it is extremely difficult. There's a obviously a time time frame and a ticking time clock on the US scholarship. So even if they get released from us, they've got a year really in essence before they can. Um, be applicable for the US scholarship system. That's a growing, massively growing area. You know, we've got, um, you know, quite a few lads who are out now there in America. We've got another two going out there this fall. Um, so that's that's really good. And those lads who go out there, it, it then goes full circle because we can get them on a Zoom call mm. or a video call to kind of present what their experiences are like. Um, but in terms of professional, there's still this stigma I feel within professional football that, oh, you know, you should you should be giving, you know, I heard. Stephen Gerrard on um, a podcast um, the the other week and talking about you know being obsessed about being a footballer and you know I've never got to that level so I you know not saying he's, he's necessarily wrong he's obviously had a half decent career um, but you know in terms of that it still is good for these lads to have something on the side whether it's just a hobby an interest a passion doesn't necessarily need to be academic. Education, university, obviously, if that's what yeah. is, you know best for that player, then great. There are options out there for them to go to university and be a professional footballer. And mm. there's you know, numerous examples of that, even at the the very top of the game. You know, in terms of Juan Mata and uh, you know Lewandowski, you could get in master's degrees of recent. Um, but it, it, it's difficult because there's still this stigma within, I feel, within professional football that you've got to be a hundred percent dedicated to football, only football. Yeah. 
give it everything. And I think that sends the wrong message. You know, I spoke earlier about developing the human being. I, I, I was watching a, a documentary the other week and, you know, somebody was saying about these are human beings who just happen to be football players. They're not footballers. And I think if you look at it that way, if you prepare them as a human being, you know, the rest, in my opinion, will follow. Well, I'm I'm really pleased to hear you say that because that that word stigma is going. Is that it, it? If the very least you can do is take away the stigma of education for these youngsters or the fear of education, because I'm guessing a lot of them from the age of four or five would have been identified as potentially good footballers and not encouraged to to take school too seriously. And and if you can show them that actually there is a lot of fun to be had. I know I sound like an old man here, but there is fun to be had in education. It's education is not something to be scared of and even if they do god forbid don't become professional footballers then they'll be more likely to embrace educational opportunities whatever level they come so i think that if if that's the only thing you do you're still doing a brilliant job i think yeah it, like you said it is difficult it's a very hard sell and you know year on year you're trying to find a different you know creative and innovative ways to kind of change the program that we run you know you, you play around with not calling it education we you know we like to call it development it, it's you know they're learning all the time whether it's you know they're in the gym in the classroom on the football pitch mm. you know at the training ground at the stadium no matter where they are you know they're always learning whether formally or informally but um, you know in, in terms of that I think again education you know these are young lads at the end of the day that they're certainly not signing up to, to do a two-year education program you know yeah. with us they're doing it because they want that opportunity to be to fulfill their lifelong dream of, of, of being a footballer but if we can just drip feed a few little bits you know a few little golden nuggets in there that will last them a lifetime then yeah essentially we're doing half half a decent job yeah if if there's one thing to come out of lockdown it's the fact that there's a, a f- hundreds of thousands of parents who suddenly got newfound respect <laughs> for what teachers do i mean lee we've got two more questions for you one of them I've, i'm afraid isn't as serious as i'd like it to be but okay. i did promise i'd ask it but the, the first one we spoke to ex-professional dean hammond recently yes. um and he told us about the lack of financial education for young players. Should that be part of your role, or is that something you think that the PFA or clubs should be doing? Um, I think both. Well, I think more than both. I think everybody should be, in, and that's one thing from from lockdown. You know, this this mantra of we're all in it together, and I think that should carry over into to football and the education development side of things as well. I mean, I find the PFA, and I know the heads of education do, an extremely good organisation. You know. Every time I've asked them to for something, whether it's from uh, you know program point of view, club academy point of view, or just for an individual player, I've yet to be told no. Um, so in terms of the BFA, you know they're excellent. You know in, in terms of what they can offer, you know they've got Paul, a transitions officer, who visits us on a regular basis. You know we've got George who will come out and and meet the the, the under 16s every single year as part of the induction process. You know there's, there's loads of other points of contact within the PFA that we have throughout the season. But I think it's not just the PFA, it's got to be the EFL, Premier League, FA, everybody to sit around a virtual or real, real table yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of, you know, seeing what everybody can do. You know, in terms of, you know, in reference to, to Dean's point, he can only speak from his personal experience and I'm not here to tell him, you know, whether he's right or wrong. That's his lived experience. But I get the funding issue from the PFA um, because, as you can imagine, you know, these are young lads and they will flip from one idea to the other. And, you know, the PFA can't just be handing out money left, right and centre for, you know, a, a quick decision made by a young lad who's just had his dream shattered. He's not going to make it professional. Mm. Oh, now I want to go to university. Can you fund me 
tuition fees for the first year and they pay out X amount of £1,000 and then after three weeks, three months, that lad decides, mm, actually, it's not for me, I'm yeah. going to quit. It, it, I think it's right there needs to be, um, you know, a contributing factor from, you know, the PFA. Again, every time we've asked, or the players that we've put them, put them in contact with have asked for funding, the lads have been more than made up with the funding that they've got. Um, but I think also these lads have to step up, have to realise the, the help that is there, the people that are there for advice and support and the financial support. But they've also got to meet us part way of, you know, in terms of asking the right questions, putting their hands up or, you know, reaching out when they need to. And unfortunately, at some point, as we all do in life, have to dip your hand in your, your own pocket to go, right, if I really want this, then a small amount of self-funding is you know, seamlessly a little bit of investment in the rest of my life, the rest of my career. I'm pleased to hear you have good words for the PFA League because, frankly, they've been getting a bit of a kicking on this pod recently. <laughs> so that that is that is good to hear. Now, um, the last question: uh, When we have somebody on the show, Lee, that, that does uh, a slightly unusual job or is uh, uh, you know, different to guests that we've had before, I, I often ask my friends if they've got questions, and a couple of the questions I, I've asked you come from them, but. Of course, we've all got one hilarious mate who says, ask him this. Uh, and I, I said, well, I'll judge what he's like first. And I think, I think Lee, I've, I've already, in the short time we've been together, I think you'll take this question in the spirit in which my hilarious friend asked it. He wants to know whether the, <laughs> your youngsters do PE lessons. Um, no, well, no, they don't. I mean, the, the, the 16 to 18, so they do, you know, uh, kind of a, an elite level PE lesson by training every single day. But Yes. Our academy players go down all the way to, to uh, under nine. So if under nine is under 16, they're school boys. They get educated at school. Um, so, yeah, in terms of that, they will do PE lessons. They'll be encouraged to do that, encouraged to do different sports. Um, so, yeah, in answer to that question, some, most of our academy players do. Unfortunately, our under 18s are doing a little bit of a high-level PE lesson on a daily basis. Oh, do you know what, Lee? That's really disappointing now. I was hoping you'd say, of course they don't. They're, they're, they're young professional athletes. Of course they don't do PE lessons. He's, he's going to be really chuffed about that. Lee, thank you so much for, thank you. for coming on and talking to us. It, I, I, it's always really interesting to hear, because we, we, we all know our clubs have academies and we all sort of think we know what goes on, but it's, it's really interesting to hear your point of view and it's really encouraging to know that at least at your club, and I'm sure your example is met at every other club, that the welfare of the young people you're looking after comes before everything else. So that's that's wonderful to hear. So thanks very much for talking to us and we wish you well in everything you do in the future. No, thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Kieran, I thought Lee was really interesting there and I introduced him by saying these are more enlightened times, but it's, it's, it's clear from what Lee says that he still thinks more could be done to help young players, especially those who reach the end of their playing career at the age of 16 and 17 without a full academic education. Yes, um, I, I can understand it from the player's point of view. You know, it, it's, the, it's the career you've always wanted. Um, and if you put yourself 100% into it, it does mean potentially that your education can suffer. So, you know, Lee clearly has had a, uh, you know, he's, he's got a challenge, but he's very passionate uh, about trying to give uh, these young men an awareness of life potentially outside of football and, and the importance of education. And also within the game itself, because, you know, we, we've reported on many stories over the course of this podcast about players who have 
given their complete faith into other individuals and it's ended up costing them financially yeah, um, yeah. And, and emotionally as well. And the problem is as well for academy educators, and it's interesting to hear that he's got kids as young as the age of nine because we all know stories as well of kids who, who at the age of five or six are identified as really, really possibly talented and possibly professional footballers. So kind of opt out of education at that early age. You kind of go, well, I, I don't really need to pay attention because I'm going to be a footballer. So by the time they even get to an academy, they're way behind in their education anyway, which is doubly unfair, isn't it? Yes, yeah. And you know, there, there are people who, whose responsibility it is to look after these mm. children, um, and that's the schools. Um, it, it is people like Lee who, who will come into contact with them at a slightly later stage. But it's also the parents. You, know, I, I, you and I, we probably both watch park football. We both go along and watch you know, you know, young young football and you know I'll, I'll watch anything if it involves a football being kicked around yeah, yeah, yeah. um and even I, I used to <laughs> oh um I, I used to referee uh, youth football yeah. and the the attitude of some you know and, 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 and it is a minority mm. of parents whose perspective was they saw their child as a, as a gravy boat you know yeah, as a gravy yeah, train yeah. um and Therefore, all that mattered was uh, his football development, and education was you know, it, it wasn't even second of in, secondary importance. It was of zero importance uh, uh, at all. And under those circumstances, you know, the, the child is is going to is going to suffer. So, you know, it, it's great that there are people like Lee around who are so committed towards making sure that these young men are going to have a, a set of skills which are transferable outside of the football environment because you know, we, we know that you know, 95% of them aren't going to have a long career in the game. Well, yeah, mm. no, probably 99% of them aren't going to get a, you know, a full career. It's a funny thing, the English language, isn't it? Because technically, gravy boat should be one above gravy train, shouldn't it? And yet, <laughs> and yet it means something completely different. I'm, I'm really pleased to hear you use the word children because – the seventeen and eighteen year old footballers wouldn't be wouldn't thank you for saying so, but we're talking about children here, so it's very important that they're looked after. There are two more smaller stories, Kieran, to end with. And the first is that Walsall have unveiled a commemorative third kit for next season, which features the names of all the fans who turned down season ticket refunds. Yes, uh, this this was a one which came came to my attention, and I, I think you got to give the the club uh, an element of credit here. And also those fans, and we've we've said on more than one occasion, um, there's no reason why a football fan should give a refund to a football club. You know, they're, they're, they are independent bodies, and of course, uh, personal circumstances might dictate that you you can't afford to do this, or or you might choose to not to do it for for moral or ethical grounds. Um, but this is sort of a a thank you from Walsall, um, and what they've done is, and the kit looks really good, by the way. Um, mm. Is that they've they've managed to get the the name sort of micro woven into the 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 body of the shirts themselves, and uh, I, I think those fans whose names are on the kit can can buy it at a discounted price as well. So I, I don't think it's taking money away from other kit sales because if your name's not on it, the chances are you're not going to buy it. Um, but uh, you know, it, it it is a way of saying thank you and and you know hats off to Walsall, and I think. Some other clubs are monitoring this uh, and might go forward with, with something of a similar nature. 
I do think it is a magnificent gesture. I have to say, though, I slightly worry that it might be divisive. That my finances were such in the early part of the pandemic, we had no idea whether we would earn money again. So when it came to the refund for the games we missed at the end of last season, I, I took the money. I'm not I'm not ashamed to say that because it 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 wasn't that much, but at the time. Every little helped, and I'm not entirely sure. I'd be looking forward to walking into a pub and seeing loads of people wearing shirts, proclaiming what a good job they did for the club. Uh, so that's that's my only issue with that, and I'm sure there'll be people who feel the same way. Now, I'm really looking forward to finding out the answer to this this last question. I deliberately didn't look it up, and normally, <laughs> normally I accidentally don't do any research here, but this time I deliberately didn't do any research. Why? Why I ask you? Has Bayern Munich's Kingsley Kuman? been fined £43,000 for driving the wrong car to training. Uh, Well, the reason for this is that Bayern Munich are sponsored by uh, Ah, VW ah. Audi. (laughs) And all the players are, I think they're given VW Audi cars. And uh, Kingsley Coman turned up to training driving a Mercedes. Now, I'm sure most players have you know more than one car. Yeah, they are wealthy yeah. young men. Um, but this uh, this was a breach of uh, a breach of conditions, and he was given a fifty thousand euro fine. And and it's you know it's it's sometimes you know it, it is a mistake. I, I I remember an issue with uh, the the Russian girlfriend and her sister where I I I made the <laughs> I, I mixed them up. Um, <laughs> Well, and, and that got me does, a lot of trouble. Yeah, it does, it does get dark very early in Russia, Kieran. To be fair, yeah, yes, yeah. and, and they're, yeah, they're the same age-ish, and yeah, I don't. I think we might like to pull a rug under there. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, Kieran? That's, I, I love that. You know what? We spend a lot of time on this pod uh, trying to explain to people that footballers are, you know, normal young men who just happen to be here, but sometimes they're dimwits, aren't they? <laughs> just yes. some of them are just dimwits. Simple as that. You can't. Yeah, you know, and if you if you've got any questions for us about Dimwits or otherwise, uh, for our questions pod, which is our next one on Monday, it's questions at priceoffootball dot com. And in the meantime, I will leave Kieran to say goodbye. Okay, thanks once again, folks, for all your feedback and and your uh, your kind words about the show. Um, if you are enjoying it, uh, press that purple button uh, on your uh, Apple Podcast or your Spotify Podcast. Um, and uh, if if you really like it, if you if you could give us a review. Uh, Producer guy tells us that it, it helps us in the ratings, um, which is good good for the business side of things. And, and myself and Kevin, we don't understand the business side of things, but you know, he's the person that's in contact with potential guests. And and the first thing they tend to do is, who the hell is this show? You know, who are these two idiots? Um, and and if they and if producer guy can say, well, yeah, we're, we're number twenty seven in in the charts, um, then it adds to the credibility. So we are trying to uh, get some guests, and uh, I, th- I think we we can reveal that in, in a couple of weeks we will be having another Scottish football special yes. um, and we'll, we will be asking questions because our guest on that day is going to be the, the head of the SPFL, Neil Doncaster. Uh, Neil is a, a really good friend of the show. Um, so we, we will be having a chat with them, but also we'll be putting your questions to him. So if you do have questions uh, for Neil, um, it's uh, questions at priceoffootball.com. Hmm. Although so little has happened in the world of football in the last 18 months, I think we're going to struggle <laughs> to find something to talk about. But yes, I'm, re- I'm looking forward to it. Neil was a very good guest the last time he was on. He was very open and very honest. Um, and there's an awful lot of things to talk about regarding Scottish football now. So yeah, please get your questions to us and we'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. The price of football.
that provides some photos all.